0: Man, you're getting killed out there. (sighs) Tell me about it. I feel like Rocky after 15 rounds with Apollo Creed. Speaking of Rocky, did you know that Sylvester Stallone wrote the first draft of the movie in like three days? Did you know that Sylvester Stallone permanently flattened out his knuckles from punching the side of beef? What about Burgess Meredith? He had lived his line in the audition, which landed him the role of Mickey. Or that a destitute Sylvester Stallone turned down $350,000 because the studio didn't want him starring in it? (gasps) Well... You can find this out and much, much more by listening to Rocky Minute, the fan podcast that covers the Rocky movies one minute at a time. You can find us on DuelingGenre.com. Now get back out there and knock this bum out. Dueling Genre.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joseph Dorowski, and this week we are discussing Amelia Peabody from the novel Crocodile on the Sandbank. And to help me with this discussion, I am joined by producer Andrew. Welcome back, Andrew. Hello. And uh, for anyone who is not aware, this is a mystery novel set in Egypt in uh, the late 1800s, and it follows the adventures of Amelia Peabody, who is a very assertive... British woman who finds herself embroiled in quite the mystery uh, in, in, in Egypt. And it plays a lot with the uh, both the historical setting and what would have been the societal expectations for for gender and age and all these other things uh, in the in the late 1880s. Uh, and it does it through the lens of this fascinating character named Amelia Peab- Peabody. Uh, Andrew. This is a suggestion
0: from a listener named Kaylee. And I am so glad. <laughs> she Thank so you. Thank you, Kaylee. This was delightful. This was excellent. It it was so satisfying. <laughs> yeah, it, it was just great. Um, she had actually,
1: I know she'd recommended this at least last year. And it was kind of in our to get to, oh, we're going to be doing that. It was even on the schedule a couple of times, but I think it got bumped by um, a patron request or two. And then when Todd was leaving the podcast, he had a couple of things he wanted to make sure we got to uh, before he left. And so it just, we never quite got around to it. And then at the start of this year, I put out another call on Facebook saying, Hey, anyone have any recommendations? And she mentioned this. I'm like, oh, I know. I've almost read that. Like, I think I even checked it out at the library at one point because that's how close it was to being on the yeah, schedule. It
0: was. And then, I think I, I had downloaded the audio book because we were planning on it. And then it got bumped. And yeah. and Don Quixote and I think Frankenstein got put ahead of it. And, uh, and so then I finally listened to the audio book. I got it through.
1: Uh, the library, uh, overcast or overdrive is the, is the library Mm -hmm. ebook and audiobook, um, electronic service, uh, which listeners, if you should check your library's, um, electronic, uh, ebook and audiobook system for this, because it was a really great audiobook. I listened to it so quickly and I immediately said, are there more? Amelia Peabody stories, and there are, and I've already listened to the second one. I have given a copy of the first book to uh, my sister as a birthday present, and I've recommended this to so many people because that's, that's how taken I was uh, with with this book uh, after reading mm-hmm. it. It is just a really, really great novel.
0: Yeah, so you said that this, this is what we were going to do. So I got it through, through the same app and started listening to it. And it was it would have been eight hours total, but I listened at double speed because I needed to get you know ready for this recording. And I was ten minutes in, I think. And I texted you, I'm like, "This is fantastic! I'm so excited!" Like the language and just the the narrator voice. And I I don't mean that in the in the audiobook sense, but like the written narration voice was so good. But the audiobook was really fantastic too. Like the narrator for the audiobook was perfect for it. <laughs> yeah. And, and then it, I told, I told Kester and my wife "It's like, you've got to get a copy of this and either read or listen to it. It is so good. Um, and this is a
1: 1975 novel. Um, when I started to look into it, I saw that there is a very, um, it, there's a presence of fandom for both this novel and for the character of Amelia Peabody online, uh, that I just never really interact with or come across. Um, mm-hmm. in-
0: no, this was, this was completely foreign to me. Like I had no inkling that this book existed or the series or, or anything.
1: Yeah. Um, but Hopefully, just even by us talking about it on this podcast, it'll be introduced to some more people because I think more people need to be aware of this character, Amelia Peabody and this series by an author named Elizabeth Peters, though she's not named Elizabeth mm-hmm. Elizabeth Peters. More than that in the trivia. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, and, and then so I finished listening to it and, and like you, I was like, okay let me find out about what else there is and you know, researching to make sure I had the additional 19 novels in the right order and and all of that, and like finding out that the series—do you know how many years it spans? Like, ah, uh, from the the publication history of the series. Uh no, the the chronological order of the oh, stories.
1: Well, my—I I think it was eight. This one is eighteen eighty-five, I believe, and it goes up
0: through the nineteen twenties, like her life up through the nineteen. Yeah, so it's it's thirty plus years, and it's published across like thirty plus years. I think the yeah. last one was in twenty seventeen posthumously. Yes. Uh, and it was, uh, I've got it in the trivia somewhat uh, when we get to the trivia, I'll say who it was, but someone else
1: completed that novel based on notes that she had when she had passed away for what was going to be the next Amelia Peabody novel.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating series. All right. I guess let's go ahead and jump into the trivia because this was one of my favorite uh, deep dives into trivia research in a while for <laughs> in preparation for this <laughs> podcast. because um Everything I read, I was like, oh, I'm intrigued. Oh, I want to know more. So uh, Elizabeth Peters, and it started out with this. I didn't even know this when I, I had listened to the entire audiobook and thought that was really great. And I like, looked up what the next book in the series was. And I downloaded that and had started listening to it. Like I said, I've already finished that now. Um, and I didn't know Elizabeth Peters was um, a pen name until I started to do more research to prepare uh, for this podcast recording. So it is the pen name of Barbara Louise Mertz. And uh, she had also published under her own name. And she also had another pen name, which was Barbara Michaels. And she published a lot, almost 70 books in her lifetime. So Barbara Mertz received a PhD in Egyptology in 1952. And before she started to write fiction, mystery novels, and suspense novels, she wrote um, some nonfiction books on ancient Egypt. And apparently these are still in print today. They were well received at the time, they're still popular enough that they're still in print. Um, And then she wrote. Um, her first fiction book and her publisher didn't want there to be any confusion between her academic nonfiction work and the fiction world uh, that that she was starting to write. So they asked that she use a a pseudonym and I believe she first published under the pseudonym Barbara Michaels. And then uh, she also began publishing under Elizabeth Peters. And I found a little bit more information about why she chose that second pen name. She has two children, a daughter named Elizabeth and a son named Peter Um, oh, so that became her pen name, which I have a daughter named Elizabeth and a son named Peter. Uh, hmm. Yeah. That's my connection. Well named by Barbara there. Um, And then in looking at what she wrote, I was just like, oh, that sounds really interesting. I want to go read more about that. Oh, that sounds really more interesting. I want to go uh, read that book. So um, under the Elizabeth Peters pen name, she wrote. The Amelia Peabody series, which, as you said, has 20 novels in it. Um, but she also wrote a series called the Blick- Vicki Bliss series. And another one called the Jacqueline Kirby series, which I could only think of Jack Kirby, the iconic car- comic <laughs> artist when I heard the name Jacqueline Kirby. Um, under the pen name Barbara Michaels, uh, it looked like she was writing more standalone novels. And those ones were gothic supernatural thrillers uh, and also gothic romances. Whereas under the... Um, Elizabeth Peters name she's writing more what are called cozy mysteries um the, the subgenre of cozy mystery which has minimal sex and violence and usually an amateur detective uh as the protagonist
0: so um, sort of a hardy boys and Nancy Drew or uh,
1: uh murder she wrote you know that yeah yeah Agatha Christie. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, which, speaking of, she won a lot of awards for mystery writing. Uh, for example, she won seven Agatha Awards, which are named after Agatha Christie, and specifically are given out for cozy mysteries. Um,
0: I'd never heard this term, cozy mystery, but I love it.
1: Yeah, I hadn't either, but once it was described, I'm like, yes, I know what that is. <laughs> I know exactly what we're talking about with that. Um also, there is an Amelia Peabody Award that is now given out by an organization called Malice Domestic, which is an organization for women mystery writers that was, let me see, it was founded by Barbara Mertz in the 1980s because she <laughs> thought uh there was too much support going on for male mystery writers and women mystery writers were getting, like, not enough uh organizational support within the publishing industry and also not enough, like, social support amongst themselves, so she created an organization for them. Uh and so now their award that they hand out is the Amelia Peabody Award. And also um uh Barbara Mertz funded a scholarship for women writers at Hood College, which like the more I read, I was just like curious more curious more curious as winning. Like Amelia Peabody's a great character, but mm-hmm. also her creator is a great character. <laughs> Um, Mert, yeah,
0: she sounds like she had a, a wonderful life
1: <laughs> yes she passed away in 2013 and as you noted the last Amelia Peabody novel was published in 2017 uh, and that was written by Joan Hess is the name of the author who completed that novel based on the notes and plans that Mertz had um, at the time of her passing so I mentioned those two other series the Vicky Bliss series and the Jacqueline Kirby series <laughs> the Vicki Bliss series Follows a professor of art history uh, and she has a love interest who is the charming Sir John Smythe, who is an art thief and they keep crossing paths as the professor of art <laughs> history who is solving crime and Sir John Smythe, who is committing the art crimes. Um, and in the Vicky Bliss novels, it said there are some references to the discoveries of Amelia Peabody in Egypt. So these are the same narrative universe, uh, but only loose like that's the. It's not like they ever actually meet. And I th- my sense was the Vicky Bliss novels are set, um, you know, more mid-century, mid, you know, mid 20th century. But mm-hmm. I have to go look at a little more. But I love the name Vicky Bliss. That is a, a series I may go look into. And then it said the Jacqueline Kirby series. <laughs> um, what I, the description I saw was they're about a librarian with a very large handbag who accidentally becomes an amateur detective who solves crimes. <laughs> which I don't know why it was like on two different <laughs> what's, sites. What's in I the handbag? Up. Yes. On two different sites, when I was looking up. They made note of the very large handbag. <laughs> <laughs> so I may, I may have to go read one of those just to find out about this very large handbag. But yeah. And, and
0: find out when that one is set.
1: Yes. Yeah. There's any more ties. Uh, but listeners, I just want to say, uh, if you're looking for a great fun read, Crocodile and Sandbake, the first, one of the Amelia Piotti, uh series is a fantastic choice, and you may find yourself saying, "What else has this author written?" And you're going to find out. Oh, there's almost seventy other books there's, <laughs> she has there's written. Plenty that that I could go read.
0: And I'd say accessible for everyone. I don't think there is any content, especially offensive for younger readers. Everything that could potentially be innuendoous is like couch pretty carefully that I I would feel very comfortable reading this out loud to a 10 year old without running into a lot of trouble
1: there. Yeah. There's definitely a few points where it is clearly alluding to sex, but it's done in such a careful way that I'm almost more delighted that it's in there.
0: than not. Yeah. Like like it it is, it is fantastically careful, carefully referenced and implied and suggested in, in just the gentlest way. Like it's it's ridiculously gentle. <laughs> like I love, yeah. It was after
1: Evelyn tells her story that <laughs> Peabody's response is, "Was it
0: enjoyable?" <laughs> like, and and so it's like, is 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 like enjoying time as a man and a woman enjoyable? Like, okay, yeah. no, we, she didn't we see say, what you're all, saying. All she <laughs> said was, "It was it enjoyable." That's as far as it
1: goes. Like, the yeah. the, the, the pronoun is it. <laughs> Well, before we get to the full summary, we want to thank you listeners for joining us. And we also want to thank every one of you who supports us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers and give out updates on our fantasy box office and new year's resolution. Those will be released monthly and all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. And we recently had a couple new patrons and they made some, uh, some choices. I'm excited to go uh, and read and listen to. One of them was an audio uh, podcast drama, which uh, we, we've only done one strictly audio format um, topic. So I'm excited to do another one of those. All right, listeners, here is the full summary for Crocodile on the Sand It is 1884 and Amelia Peabody has recently become independently wealthy after the passing of her father he left the bulk of his estate to her rather than to his five older sons they were establishing careers and also amelia was the only one to stay and care for him as he, his health failed and i did like i'm like it was just a subtle like like you just becoming immersed into this world and it makes note that everyone thought that was a great arrangement until they found out their father had been really careful with his money and it was a lot of money and then suddenly everyone's like whoa <laughs> Um, But the will was the will, and now she has the money. Uh, And at the age of 32, she feels that she is quite the established spinster. And even though suitors (laughs) came out of the woodwork... After they discovered that she had a rather large inheritance, she knew they were only in it for the money. So she decides she's going to get out of England and go tour Europe, and then head to Egypt. Um, she has uh, been very like intellectually cur- curious in her life, and her father was as well. So when she was caring for him, she read a lot about Egypt and uh, the archaeology that was happening there, and she wants to go see it for herself. So she takes on a companion because propriety will not allow her to travel alone. So she has this other woman who is also. Old enough that it's unlikely she'll ever be married. Probably Um, (laughs) mid-30s. And they're going to travel together. But then in Rome, her companion is stricken with illness. And I cannot remember the name of this first companion. But she's not going to be able to go on to Egypt. So just omit her from your minds, readers or listeners. And while wondering what she should do now that she has already booked a second uh, person's passage to Egypt, she encounters a woman who has fainted in the streets of Rome. A crowd is gathered around looking, but they're not helping. So Amelia just steps in to take care of this woman who is out cold on the street. After this woman regains consciousness, uh, Amelia takes her back to her hotel to Find out what's going on, and we learn the woman is also British, and her name is Eve- Evelyn Forbes, and she has a sad tale to explain how she ended up unconscious in the in a Roman gutter. <laughs> like there, there's elements of this that are very soap <laughs> operatic, but they like are acknowledged in the book, and I love that the way uh, yes Elizabeth the, Peters writes about these or Mertz, I guess.
0: Is. Yeah, the tone, the tone for all of this is like it's not. Poking fun at the tropes that it's using, but it is acknowledging that these are tropes. Yes, and it embraces them. like it's very self-aware.
1: Yes, yeah, yes. That's a that's a good way of putting it. It's very self-aware of the uh, of
0: um you know the some of the traditions that are being lifted for this new story. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so it embraces them and makes use of them to to full effect. And like, this is the kind of story we're writing. So I'm going to use all the stuff that goes into stories like this. All right. So Evelyn Forbes, this is her story. She was beloved by her wealthy
1: grandfather. Her parents had died. So she was being raised by her grandfather who doted on her. And if he could have, he would have given her his title. So he's British aristocracy, but he can't pass his title on to a woman because, I mean, really? It's, Uh, It's, it's, it's England in the 1880s. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, so his title is going to be going to uh, Lucas, who is uh, Evelyn's cousin, who the grandfather doesn't like, both because he is a Foppus wastrel or wastrel, whichever way you choose to pronounce it, I've definitely heard both, but also because he has Italian blood, and this
0: 1880s British man is, has some prejudices against the Italian blood. Um, there is... There are plenty of Shades of Prejudice here yes. on the story, Okay, but and mostly ex- satirized. Exactly, yes. Uh, it's something I want to touch on, but
1: I think this is a, a, she a... Uh, Mertz, or Peters, however you want to refer to her, does a great job of acknowledging the time period, having a character who is progressive, but not so progressive it feels out of place, right? Like, like mm-hmm. the, she also has some of those uh, you know, prejudices against, you know, the Arabs, uh, you know, as they're referred to um, in this or the Arab blood, I think is, is referenced a few times, uh, even as she's progressive in other ways. It's not like a mo- a person with modern sensibilities was dropped down into the 1880s. It's, this is a progressive for the 1880s, but there's a lot to be dealt with yeah. in, in that world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, however, so so Evelyn, uh, Evelyn's grandfather wants is it, wants to make her a full heir. Can't really do that, but he says I'm going to leave you all my money, but I just can't give you the title. But Lucas is going to have to get the title, but you take the money. And Evelyn says, if I was in love with Lucas, like if he was a lovable man, this would I'd just marry him, and this would solve all the issues. But he is an annoying fop. <laughs> So I, I don't love them. Uh But she, she was particularly... One of the areas that she wanted to study was art. And so she got an Italian art teacher uh, named Luigi. And she fell in love with him. And they ran off together. Uh, with the end goal of being married. But they... They didn't wait for (laughs) for marriage. Uh, (laughs) And her grandfather, upon hearing uh, this, he wrote Evelyn out of the will because, remember, he hates Italians. So it's not just that she ran off. It's that she ran off with an Italian. Uh, And then he had a stroke and fell into a coma. And that's the last Evelyn heard about him. And then the art teacher hears about this, and they run off all the way to Rome. And when he finds out that she's out of the will, he abandons her. So now she's a ruined woman. She has no money or relatives to turn to.
0: She couldn't pay for any food, so she hasn't eaten. For and, a couple and we're days. gonna Joseph, and, just yeah. to just to clarify, that's ruined woman in quotes for the book. That is the context that they are providing. Yes. Not uh, yes. And uh Amelia like scoffs at the idea that she's a ruined woman, as will some other characters at this
1: uh at this point. Yeah. Uh so she has she has no money, she hasn't eaten for a couple of days, she's wandering the streets of Rome not knowing what to do, and she passes out, and that's when Amelia finds her. Uh, And Amelia says, well, guess what? I have a spare ticket to Egypt. Let's go. And Evelyn protests that, uh, again, she's ruined. I'm going to tarnish your reputation just by mere association. But Amelia will not have it and takes Evelyn on as a companion. And they travel to Egypt. Uh, In Egypt, they tour museums before they're going to begin their trip up the Nile to go see the actual ruins. And in one museum, uh, they meet a very rude and very large man named Radcliffe Emerson, who laments the state of the care for the Egyptian artifacts and the poor methods of preservation that have been undertaken by archaeologists. He argues with the caretaker of the museum. He is rude about every other archaeologist that has ever passed through Egypt (laughs) and decries their methods. Um, And uh, to try and defuse the situation, he has a younger brother named Walter who is smaller and much nicer and also seems kind of smitten with Evelyn. Uh, uh, And it turns out he's not the only one who's smitten with Evelyn. (laughs) Because Luigi shows back up, uh, the art teacher, and begs her to take him back. But Evelyn refuses because of his previous behavior. She doesn't trust him, certainly doesn't love him anymore. And then Evelyn's cousin Lucas shows back up. And uh, Lucas says that their grandfather was unfair in cutting off Evelyn. He says, I want to either marry you, so we both get the full inheritance, or I want to give you half the inheritance. uh, Because I think it's just unjust what's happened to you. Evelyn is not in love with Lucas uh, and again, she views herself as irredeemably tainted, so she refuses to marry him. And she also loved her grandfather so much that she wants to honor his last wish- wishes, so, re- so she refuses to take the half the money, uh, that Lucas her. And Lucas says, I'm going to keep wooing you. You're going to love me. We're going to get married. I'm going to hire a boat to follow you up the Nile or down the Nile. I can't remember which way they're going. <laughs> And, you can, um, and, you, and they can't stop him from doing yeah, that, so he's going to go hire a boat. Um, while they're still in Cairo, Amelia hires a local Christian Egyptian named Michael to be their guide. He's worried about a sick daughter, and Amelia has some medical knowledge and is able to go give the appropriate medicine to heal her, which my, makes Michael extremely loyal to Amelia. So he like, he's all in on taking care of Amelia after she saves his daughter. Um, the night before they're gonna get on their boat, um, to so go up the Nile, Amelia wakes up and sees a mummy in her room. Uh, this is creepy. It escapes from her. She can do anything. And while she's she, like, I love the descriptions we get where like, this is eerie. It feels supernatural, but it can't be. And she makes the assumption that this might be someone who's trying to play on uh, the fears of Europeans who are coming in. And they're like, there's this mystique about Egypt. And so it's a thief that was trying to break in and just figures if there's a mummy in the room, everyone's going to run away and I'll have time to make my getaway. Uh, That's how she kind of makes sense of this mummy. But then she kind of just forgets about this (laughs) encounter. Um... Then they get on the boat, uh, and as they're going, they stop an ex- at an excavation site. The boat captain doesn't want to. He says, really, all we are supposed to go all the way down the Nile to the farthest point we're going to. Uh, and then we, when we're coming back up, we, we'll stop at sites as you want to. And, and Amelia's like, well, no, that's the reverse order, because then we'd be seeing the newest stuff. And she wants to see the most ancient first. Um, so she gets off to go look at this more ancient excavation site and there they meet Walter Emerson. So that's the younger brother who was the nice one at the museum is there. Evelyn's happy to see him, but not too happy because she doesn't want him to love her because she doesn't think anyone should love her because she's tainted. Uh, and Amelia, uh, uh, learns that, um, Walter's brother who is just called Emerson in the text. So if I ever just refer to Emerson, just know it's the big angrier brother.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, it gets a little bit tricky throughout the book because there's like the social niceties of referring to each other with first name versus last name. And so they default to last name a lot.
1: Oh, and and there's but that's like,
0: confusing when you have a set of brothers. And so you have yes. Walter and Emerson, but they're both Emersons, So it's Walter and Radcliffe and Walter refers to him as Radcliffe, but Amelia always refers to him as Emerson. And there, there's like big moments of like social protocol Breakage,
1: or like a, as a sign of familiarity and friendship, where they start to use first names with each other, but really yes. for the bigger brother, it's always just Emerson, <laughs> and and he always calls Amelia yeah. Peabody just Peabody. So like the name Peabody gets used a lot in this text. Yeah. um but Walter reveals that his brother, uh, who I'm just going to call Emerson, is very sick, and Amelia just takes charge. This is what Amelia does. If there's a need. She's going to, and she is capable of addressing it. She's going to. So she spends the entire night in this Egyptian tomb that uh, the brothers are using for their headquarters um, and their living quarters. So it's, a, it's a, a tomb that has been raided by thieves. This is the, the issue with so many of the Egyptian uh, areas that they're looking at. They've been raided by thieves and there's really not much left other than just the stone that was there. Uh, and, and he's like delirious with a fever. She stays up all night nursing him. The fever finally breaks. And uh, so Amelia asks Walter if he could set up a nice comfortable tomb where Amelia and Evelyn can rest because they've been up all night taking care of Emerson. And uh, <laughs> Walter's like a nice comfortable tomb. Like he doesn't envision those words going together, uh, particularly for women. Uh, <laughs> but that's what Amelia wants. And so he does uh, set up uh, living quarters uh, for Amelia and Evelyn um, because Amelia, while Emerson's going to recuperate and convalesce is going to kind of take over, his work that he was doing. Uh, He had found uh, a whole set of hieroglyphs um, that he was trying to preserve with this mixture that was going to stop the paint from spreading, but he didn't use a brush. He was just dabbing it on with his fingers. And Amelia just does that for days. Just sets about preserving these hieroglyphs. Um, And if you recall Evelyn, she has some artistic skills. That's part of her backstory. So she begins to draw um, the hieroglyphs that they're encountering because they fear they're going to be destroyed just by time or other people um, coming through um and emerson when he wakes up and is, is healthy enough he just wants to get right back to work and he generally just yells at everybody but peabody stands up to him at all times tries to make sure that he takes care of himself um the local helpers who are there they come and tell emerson that they found a mummy which is a huge deal and they take everyone to a tomb and there is a mummy there but its age like it doesn't match up like something is wrong this 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 mummy isn't the right age for the tomb uh, it seems to have come from a different era just everything about it is weird. And they said, well, well, we'll try and figure this out in the morning. But that night, Amelia wakes up and sees the mummy in her room. And then the mummy rums, uh, leaves the cave where she and the Emersons are staying. They're in different, again, tombs within the same cave uh, system. And in the morning, uh, the mummy that they had found is gone. So they found, you know, the workers came and said, hey, we found this mummy. They 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 actually bring it back closer to their headquarters, but then it's just gone. But Amelia saw a mummy up and walking around. And let's just say a lot of superstitious fears uh, start to be felt. <laughs> Understandably at this <laughs> point. <laughs> um, and particularly uh, amongst the workers. Like uh, Amelia and Emerson... Uh, are trying to be logical about this. And that definitely rubs off on Walter and Evelyn. But the the local workers are freaking out a bit uh, about the curses of the mummies. Now, Lucas shows up. He's got his boat. He's been following. He tried to follow them. He's, he's, he's all eager to help out. He's very intrigued with this mummy business. He says, this is just like the romantic novels that I've been reading uh, in England. And this is another point where like it, it acknowledges the tradition <laughs> of where a lot of these things, these ideas are coming from. Uh, and he thinks he he posits the theory that this mummy is just the locals dressing up and they want to scare you guys away because they must have found a tomb that had never been discovered before and it still has all its wealth it still has all the gold and they want to steal that but they know if you're around you're not going to let them so they're trying to scare you away so they can go steal uh, the the, the wealth from this undiscovered tomb and like as he's presenting this as though like guys I figured this out and then he was like Like in her head, the narrator as the narrator, she's like, I already thought about this, and here's the three reasons why this this doesn't make any sense. Uh, But she doesn't say any of that out loud. Uh, It's just one of the delightful parts of the writing in this. Um, While Lucas is there, um, they uh, he keeps trying to woo Evelyn, which clearly bothers Walter. And uh, Evelyn clearly likes Walter and not Lucas, but she doesn't want Walter to like her because she views herself as a ruined woman and she knows if she tells her backstory he will of course just shun her at that point uh and amelia thinks all of this is ridiculous and but emerson just seems focused on the work and uh, like as far as amelia can tell is just completely unaware <laughs> of, of all the romantic trauma that's going on around them and she is also perturbed because it looks like emerson is kind of sucking up to lucas and she thinks it's because lucas might be able to fund uh more excavations because uh the emersons are just using their own very small means to try and do anything they can to preserve uh, these antiquities, and and uh, you know to be out there doing their excavations. And Lu- they know Lucas has come into a lot of money, so she thinks she's he's sucking up to Lucas just as a potential, um, you know, uh, person to fund their their studies. Patron. Right. At this point, I want to say things get convoluted, and I tried to write this down in summary, uh, and I found it just became confusing to leave them out here, and I don't want this to be. <laughs> in any way viewed as a condemnation of the writing in the book. Cause I was enthralled while listening to the book. I couldn't get through it fast enough to find out what was going on. There's lots of red herrings. There's lots of twists and turns, uh, but in trying to summarize it, like it was just getting too twisted. So there's a whole lot that happens. And I will just say that, um, the mummy bothers them continuously. They lay some traps for the mummies, none of which work. Michael, their loyal helper disappears. And Lucas says, it's probably just because he got so scared of the mummy that he ran away. Um, Emerson at one point gets a dislocated shoulder. Walter gets shot and wounded by Lucas when they accidentally, they're, they're trying to get captured the mummy and it goes wrong. And, and Walter, or, uh, Walter gets shot. Um, Lucas pushes Evelyn again to try and marry him and she refuses and she says why and Lucas proposes marriage and says I don't care about any of that or Walter says I don't care about any of that I'll marry you and Evelyn is just like overcome with joy uh, because of that Uh, but there's still this mummy situation no one can quite figure out what the right motive is for the mummy so there's just a lot of though. though, that's all going on and it's well written then but I couldn't find a way to put it into a paragraph um, in a a good summary. here (laughs) Um, so now we're going to get to the night where everything comes to a head so they know the mummy's still out there bothering them it's agreed that uh, they all need to uh, someone needs to stay up and keep watch lucas is going to take the first three hour block they have a good dinner before going to bed and then amelia like her mind is reeling as she's trying to figure everything out but she's also like half falling asleep but her mind won't let her fall asleep and she hears lucas come into the room and she's like is that you and he's like oh i'm just checking on you and when emerson hears them talking emerson comes out and says i want to take over the watch and emerson looks like he's been throwing water on his own face and amelia's like what is he doing trying to keep himself awake and then lucas is is like well fine if you're both up i'll just go to bed and as soon as lucas leaves emerson's like we've been drugged he's trying. lucas drugged us he's sure it was lucas and he's like do you have anything that can help us stay awake and peabody grabs her smelling salts and they still sniff them and it definitely wakes them up and they hear some moaning outside and they see it's michael the peabody's trusty servant who had disappeared he's outside and they run to him and they discover his wrist a rubbed raw he must have been tied up he's incoherent emerson carries him back up to their cave but the mummy has carried evelyn out of the cave And Walter, (laughs) we find out. Um, And uh, Emerson and Peabody want to rush to the rescue, but then there's gunfire that's keeping them at bay, like at the mouth of their cave. Every time they start to make a move, there's gunfire. And uh, Emerson's like, well, we've got to go rescue Evelyn. We know she's being carried away. Uh, And he's like, I'm going to run out there. And then he confesses his love for Peabody and kisses her, which she did not see coming, but she kind of likes it. (laughs) A lot. (laughs) and then (laughs) and then emerson like she says something like when i had all my suitors when i first inherited this wealth i allowed them to kiss me because i was curious about the experience that is no comparison to what it was like (laughs) to be kissed by emerson yeah
0: yeah she was like the the experiences i had were not so great it turns out they were a bad representation of the experience as a whole (laughs) yes yeah. Uh, I like, uh, like it because the moment he
1: kisses her is when she realizes oh I, I like him like we've been fighting this whole time but it was really because we lo- like we really did like each other there's a line at the very beginning of the novel where she says "Um, it's a long I, I'm not going to quote it exactly but it, it's of the sense that I am too strong willed to have a controlling husband so anyone who wants to control me they're not going to be having this relationship and I am also um of a taste that any man who is so weak willed I could control him is
0: not for me. <laughs> like yeah, and yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have anyone who I could control, and nobody that would could control me. You know, it, it like she's cutting out everybody basically, right. except for it turns out Emerson, <laughs> right? <laughs> like this is
1: what the relationship, like that relationship, says I couldn't have anyone, anything like these. You know, what I envision to be the relationships. Uh, of the world, the romantic relationships that we see out there, those wouldn't work. And this whole book, we've seen this other kind of relationship with Emerson, um, and mm-hmm. and she just realizes it at this moment. And then after he kisses her, he rushes out into the gunfire, and Peabody's like freaks out and says, "Wait!" <laughs> and she rushes out after him, and uh, together they're able to capture Lucas. So he, they don't get shot. She worries he's been shot, but he hasn't. They they captured Lucas. It was Lucas who was shooting at them. They realize that Evelyn and Walter are both missing, and they go and find them uh, in the tomb where they found the very the, the mummy that the workers supposedly discovered. They find uh, them there, and there, Luigi, Evelyn's one-time lover, is monologuing about what has been going on. You see, Luigi and Lucas are cousins on their Italian side. Uh, so on Lucas's Italian side his I think his mom was Italian Is that right? I can't remember uh, you know, I'm not sure half, half British, half Italian On his Italian side, Lu, uh, Luigi uh, is the cousin And Lucas hatched this plan For Luigi to go and seduce And disgrace Evelyn So that she would be cut out of the will And therefore Lucas would become the sole heir of all the money That worked, they thought But then Evelyn's grandfather Woke up from that coma he was in And he realized Lucas is awful. I like Evelyn still. And he rewrote Evelyn back into a secret will that he had shipped to Evelyn before he died. And Lucas knows that secret will is out there. He thinks maybe in Evelyn's belongings, well, he was able to basically track the package to Egypt, but the British consulate has the package and won't give it to anyone but Evelyn. So before Evelyn even knows about this, his goal was to go marry her and make it look like hey we're we're together so if she gets the inheritance he gets it all i would not be surprised if he then had the plan to kill her somehow because <laughs> yes. turns out lucas not a great guy mm-hmm. Um, But that was, you know, and and then this whole mummy thing was all just a red herring to basically stall them long enough for Lucas to work out a way to find out where this will is and be able to destroy it or make Evelyn fall in love with him. He succeeded in neither of those. Uh, Emerson and Peabody burst into this tomb uh, and they rescue Evelyn and Walter. They tie up Luigi. And then we get an epilogue where we discover that... Um, Evelyn and Walter are married and have a child, and another is coming soon. And Pewati and Emerson are married, and she's writing this from Egypt, from an archaeological dig site, where she is having to um she she's writing down her memoir because she's not allowed to go down and dig because she herself is pregnant as well. Uh and that is the end. So I excellent work. I apologize for like kind of skipping over a huge swath of the mystery where all the red herrings are. I just couldn't find a way to lay it all out <laughs> in a way that would be coherent. But strongest recommendations for this book, listeners. Go, yeah, go, go listen to it and find all those those loops and turns and twists that I omitted. And again, I've already listened to the second book. I really like that one, too. It's it's very good mystery writing uh, from, from a Yeah, theater.
0: and all of, all of the red herrings are satisfying. They're good twists and turns. There's a lot of like, okay, but yeah, who... Uh, who is doing this? And could it be this person? Could it be that person? Like I was stumped and I was trying really hard to figure it out.
1: Yes. And um, one thing that I really liked is like uh, in, in the style of, of some of the best mystery writing, things that, uh, that get introduced and you think they've been dealt with come back and have more significance. So Evelyn's whole backstory, which you almost think is, you know, in some ways just a driving force to get just episode, her introduction. Yeah. It, that is really a huge key to that's that's history. it that's yeah. what it's all about <laughs> yeah um but the way it gets dealt with you're like oh okay now evelyn's here for this adventure uh let's, let's see what happens um mm-hmm. i think there's a lot to dig into with the character of uh the peabody but one thing i just want to say why has there never been an adaptation of this book or this it's it, it is it
0: is it is just itching it is so ripe for a period bbc drama
1: yeah, or Netflix
0: is you throwing know, put, money put a number, right at things. Let's, yeah, let's make this the, like this content is here. It was eight hours of like written spoken word content. You can get that into a ninety minute TV episode for Netflix, easy. Mm-hmm. Like this would be perfect for for an hour to two hour or do, or do the BBC series. model where you we're know, like we're doing a, a
1: season of of four or five episodes like the Sherlock model. Like, yeah, here here are your yeah, three you could do movie length episodes that are come out every other year
0: yeah and you could do i mean, you've got twenty books, so there's plenty of content, and you could just do this book it would it would fit like you have I think appropriate breaks for commercials, except Netflix doesn't need those, you know, but like <laughs> yeah. the pacing is laid out. it's like, yeah, you can make this into into t v
1: and uh, no problem like I said this is
0: this is an easy, easy adaptation.
1: you and I kind of discovered this for this podcast because of Kaylee's recommendation, but there are a lot of people that love this series. I just doing a quick Google for Crocodile on the Sandbike Bank. There are a lot of results. I think there's a ready audience for this too, if they were to do a good adaptation. Did you have any actors or actresses in mind for these roles uh, as you were reading and thinking about so, potential adaptations?
0: It it was tough because um, I was trying to, you know, based on the description, Amelia describes herself several times and tries to make herself sound, you know, spinsterish or or kind of especially frumpy um in a lot of ways to be like I'm not attractive it's and, and I'm okay with that and and you know try to be comfortable with that. Um and so I was trying but to like everyone work else around her is like not like, oh you're you look You're fine. You're looking great. <laughs> yeah. It's like you are doing just fine. And so what I thought of was trying to find somebody who's not, you know, classically Hollywood attractive. Um and so I thought in Broadchurch, the other detective, um, Olivia Coleman is is the actress's name, she's a little older for playing a 32 year old. She's she's in her forties. Um,
1: well, well I, I, I thought name, it's like, okay, was okay, to think, what do I know Olivia Colman from? Oh, I know her.
0: Um, Broadchurch would be the number one thing. Yes. Yes, I think. Uh uh-huh. and it's like, okay, not not, you know, presented as a classically beautiful um person, but not not unpleasant. Uh <laughs> and I thought she could play the smart and and intense and and all of that.
1: Yes. Um maybe it was a lot of the uh like the, the go go get itness of Amelia Peabody, but I was thinking of Haley Atwell uh from Agent Carter. Oh. And she is 36 yeah.
0: I think right now. We looked it up before recording cuz we were talking about this. Yeah. So, uh, so I think she would fit Yeah, that uh, fits that fits very well, uh, like all of the I want to wear pants. Yes. Oh, there's some great
1: where like to tie up the uh, their prisoners at the end in this final act when they're when they're capturing Luigi mm-hmm. and Lucas. Um, she's like, I cut a strip from the middle of my skirt, and then I cut some strips at the bottom, and then I t- tied my skirt together. And then I was like, Oh, these. This is almost like trousers. This is glorious. I must wear trousers. <laughs> like I can move. Yeah. I as soon as run. we're done with
0: this, I am going to have somebody make me <laughs> pants. <laughs> Um, um, oh, Haley Atwell would be a really good choice for for that attitude. That I am going to. I mean, they, they say in the book, you know, I'm going to be a feminist about this, and
1: yeah, she's you a know assert my role. Just, uh, you know, at the time, uh, and all the all these other things. I think it just fit. Um, and and also mm-hmm. because I mean, it's not the same period, but she's been in a period piece. That kind of you know, which I guess uh, is, is the later Peabody. Books are are heading towards where we see her as Agent Carter, but not quite there. So, you know, still a decade off. Yeah. Um. And for <laughs> for Emerson, uh, you had I started us down this path. You completed it. This casting could not work now. But the big, burly, hairy Emerson, and then his slighter, nicer brother. Now I can't help but see Kelsey Grammer and David Hyde Pierce in those two roles. But mm-hmm. it would have to be young, much much younger, Kelsey Grammer and David Hyde Pierce.
0: Yeah. And I think. I think they say that they're dark haired and he he has like a big black beard yeah. initially and then shaves yeah. um after she arrives at the at the dig site. But and so uh,
1: Kelsey Grammer can carry off trying a to large a thing build. Like he is hairy, if you've ever watched Fraser, He has a number of scenes of the show. Yes. He's a very hairy man, but he also has kind of the uh pompous intellectualism, uh and and he can yell. He yeah, yells a lot of and uh emerson yells a lot in this book so i i can see that but obviously that won't mm-hmm. work if we're doing an adaptation in 2019 but that's kind of what i yeah, had in my head and- as i was reading
0: yeah so i'm trying to think because you know his his main features are big hairy and gruff so who fits that you know those categories in modern entertainment jack black <laughs> <laughs> but jack black's too nice yeah <laughs>
1: Uh, I don't know, listeners. If you have any ideas, please,
0: uh, please. Uh, Chris Hemsworth, if if he if they let him grow some body hair and be angrier, <laughs> yes, yeah, he never
1: really leans into the angriness. I, I guess in some of the Thor, yeah, he does in some of the Thor. He gets his, gets his angry moments. Um, oh, the, oh, wait a uh, second. Wait a second. Wait a second. wait a second. wait a second. I
0: think I've got something. I think I've got something. Okay, Henry Cavill. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I would, I would take Henry Cavill for that. I don't
1: know if he's going to be doing a, uh, you know, a, a regular TV series, but I'd, I'd watch it if he did.
0: Yeah. All right. But it, all, all the characters really. This is so enjoyable for the characters.
1: Yes, and also the writing. Like she
0: can turn pay a, a phrase really well. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And and like a wonderful vocabulary. Like you can tell, like oh, the author is really smart and word savvy well and and she knows the world of ancient
1: egypt (laughs) like okay she has a phd in that but also um like we we mentioned uh like some of the way that they they demonstrate some self awareness she mentions um like in giving the descriptions of traveling the nile she's like she does a fair amount of description but she says you could go read any travelogue because every british man who comes here, feels the need to write a travelogue. And I was like, oh, she read a bunch of travelogues to know how to describe this. That's that's what this means right now <laughs> is is that she went and read the writings from the eighteen eighties, uh, you know, the the travelogue publications to know how to describe what it's like to be on a boat on the Nile. And then um when they're talking about the the like they're trying to figure out what in the world is who like they don't think this is supernatural. They know this is someone dressing up like a mummy to scare us. But why and both Peabody and Emerson are like this is this feels like a British plot from someone who's read a
0: lot of our romance Penny Dreadful basically yeah it's like some some European has read a bunch of stuff and they came up with this play. right?
1: and and that is the what she's modeling is kind of like the the late 1800 supernatural penny dreadfuls. <laughs> um, and and, mm-hmm. and she's not, she's making it not supernatural, but she's saying the reason this plot is so convoluted uh, is because this is inspired by someone who would have read those. That's our bad guy. It's <laughs> someone who would have read
0: those. Yeah. Um, and, and so I'm very much. And, and so they story. kind of point at Lucas as the, as the culprit. It's like, maybe it's Lucas. Cause he seems like the kind of guy who would have read this stuff and then tried to do it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I found the quote. Sorry. I was looking at it because I, I said she
1: writes really well and has great turns of phrase. Um, so I was just like Googled quotes from crocodile on the Sandbank, And I found that quote. We tried to describe her there. I could not endure a man who would let himself be ruled by me. And I would not endure a man who tried to rule me. That said a lot better than what
0: you and I <laughs>
1: tried yeah. to describe right there.
0: Yeah. It's uh, like, Oh, this is, you know, she really has a mastery of, the words she's using. And and when you said like the descriptions and, and you could use any travelogue to read descriptions of this sort of thing. She still has those moments where she re- is really indulgent, like with the pyramids. Yes, with the pyramids and with the sunsets uh, in Egypt. Um, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So she does let herself indulge in writing these descriptions.
1: All right. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about the character themselves. So I, I'd say probably most uh, definitely Amelia, but also maybe a little bit of, about Emerson. I think both you and I mm-hmm. are really enjoyed and we're taken with following her adventure and her voice as the narrator of this. But what exactly is it yes. about Amelia that you think makes her resonate and stand out?
0: Um, the first thing that I, I think of when you say that is her, her energy and motivation to go experience whatever she's going to experience Like she's really enthusiastic about that. And like, I want to go do something. So I have the means I have no attachments. I have no obligations. I'm going to go do something and I'm going to use whatever savvy, whatever knowledge, whatever training I have. And I'm going to put that to use and it benefits the lives of others, which generates a lot of loyalty towards her. She isn't doing it. Like she's the only selfish thing she wants is I want to go see what's interesting. And beyond that, all of her money could be given away to other people like Evelyn or to help Michael or to provide care for the, the crew on the well, boat. She, like they started calling her the lady doctor because she wants to do all the 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 anything. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody has a, a scratch or a cut. She wants to tend to it because she's she's completely selfless in that regard.
1: Yes. Uh. And one she says like her plan is to leave a lot of the money to the British Museum, because that's what gave her father joy. Right that you know that he loved mm-hmm. uh the artifacts of the British Museum and that um kind of uh study, and so like if anything happens to her like i think
0: I think it says her will is set up that everything just goes to the british museum um, yeah, so whatever she doesn't spend on her adventure is arranged for anyway, and she doesn't have any obligation to to anybody or anything um for how she spends her money yeah
1: um i I like what you're saying, like uh she has this like so she's not consume consumed with the idea of wealth like she's comfortable and that's you know that's good and and it's at the same time she's not gonna like push away comforts like they get one of the biggest boats to take them up the Nile, and they they get new curtains <laughs> they get a grand piano because mm-hmm. she likes music so like she wants to be comfortable but it's not like the accumulation of wealth is her driving force and as you said at the same time like she enjoys her creature comforts. She's also perfectly comfortable sleeping in a tomb for a week. (laughs) And, uh, you know, uh, because, because she's more interested in the learning and, you know, this ancient culture than she is
0: in being comfortable,
1: you know, physically comfortable.
0: Um, yeah. And another thing that comes to mind, and I don't know like what characteristic it's super indicative of, but, she talks about her medical background and she does a lot of medical stuff um throughout the book in in helping emerson in helping michael's daughter um in helping the people on the boat but she's she's so energetic and enthusiastic about that that she even gets to the point where she's unfortunately i did not get to administer any amputations yeah. <laughs> it's like i wish i could have cut off someone's finger <laughs> <laughs>
1: um yeah and it, it, there's um i i guess like this uh this kind of a, a pursuit of adventure in whatever form it may take is, is there like the med- medical adventure like i i, I want to be like on the frontiers or the edges of medicine mm-hmm. in understanding the ancient world she wants to be on the cutting edge you know and uh but you know pushing pushing that forward and and not just like reading about it in the book but like there engaged in it and same with like yeah, you know, i want to i want to be, be smearing things yeah. over the hieroglyphs yeah and she wants to be there engaged with you know the the medical side of things as well um and when, when she sees the need like her own uh, self-interest kind of goes away. She's like, well, I'm, I'm doing this. Like uh, it mentions when they were going up the Nile, they they stopped at a number of villages along the way. And she's like, well, I use most of my medicine on the children in these villages. <laughs> like, I wish I'd bought more, but she wasn't like hoarding her medicine just in case for herself. It's like, well, here's the need. We're using the medicine. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, there's uh, this, this, uh, you know, vibrant urge to just be doing uh, that, that, that spills off of her persona, like like off the page of of, of this character, as is, is read about this character. Like there's this urge to go be going and doing uh these things uh to the point that you understand why she ruffles <laughs> so many people and rubs a lot of yes. people the wrong way. Uh because propriety, uh politeness, these are not her strong points.
0: Yeah, they they get in the way of her
1: objectives yes yeah like like whatever it is that she needs to be doing she's gonna do it if it means uh, you know cutting her skirt and turning it into trousers even though women aren't supposed to wear trousers <laughs> you know she's she's gonna do that mm-hmm. uh, if it means yelling at uh, people in the museums she's gonna do that because it's, it's not just Emerson who yells at the museum she yells right back at Emerson in the museum I may have left that out to mm-hmm. some of the um, oh that, that's another great uh exchange in the museum when Emerson's first yelling Uh, he yells at her saying uh. Everywhere I go, I see English women who are, you know, just uh, basically they're dilettantes. They think they know what they're doing, and they don't, and they just get in the way. And she says, "Well, we're just following in the footsteps of the English men who always think they know best, <laughs> and, <laughs> and and we're we're cleaning up um, their messes, you know." And and so they're, you know, from the very beginning, they're they're yelling back and forth, which um, does carry on some in the second book, even though they are very happily married. The um, the, the the certainty that each is always right does still carry on in the second book I, I will say one of my favorite ones in the second book uh, you know small spoiler warning this is very minor for, for the plot of it but at a certain point they each write down in a sealed envelope who they think the villain is <laughs> is at the heart of the mystery and then she says um, like they do this and then later on she's like I only wrote it down because I knew I could go and change it uh, secretly without him knowing <laughs> And then they get to the big reveal at the end and eventually she's like, You changed yours, didn't you? <laughs> like you, you did to me what I was planning to do to you. <laughs> and in identifying the, the villain of this, uh this piece. And I think there's something very nice in the relationship of Peabody and Emerson that they, they don't back down to each other. Uh they, they almost become stronger mm-hmm. in their interaction, uh, even as they both maintain that surety, like they're they're better people for their interactions with each other they clearly fit together even though like an outsider not understanding their relationship or having you know seen it uh develop the way readers have would just think this is the worst marriage potential ever (laughs) you know these two people who are fighting all the time but as readers somehow usually yeah they, they should be together
0: well yeah and and i think again that part of that is her use of the trope it's like okay these two fight a ton but they're gonna fall in love Right, but it's, and they do, and it's totally satisfying. <laughs> um, but it's it doesn't feel like the, um, like the
1: oh the boys dipping the the, you know, the girls and pigtails just to get her attention. It's not that kind of fighting where it's like I'm going to mask. No, it's I'm not because these are their
0: personalities. Yes,
1: that's it. It's not. I'm masking my. Uh, attraction to you because I don't know how to emotionally deal with it because I'm a stunted individual <laughs> by turning it into no, no he's he's a into you know bullying basically that's not what's going on yeah. it's just their their personalities are loud self assured uh and and they're go- they're gonna clash but they also are going to go together very well
0: yes and so yeah it, it never feels like either of them is hiding their emotion about each other. Um, like to the point where he, at the end, um, you know, when he kisses her, he says, I'm, I'm doing this despite the fact that I might survive being shot at, (laughs) you know, I just need to express this the way I'm feeling it in this moment. And uh, most likely I'll die. So it doesn't matter. But even if I don't die, I still would rather kiss you than not. Yeah. And then, um, like in the, in the epilogue, it says like, you know, we, okay, there was all
1: this drama with the mummies, but don't think I forgot the kiss readers. And, uh, and then she's like, I was never alone with Emerson to talk about it. And when I finally did talk to him about it, he's like, he's like, I was just worried you'd say you never want to see me again. <laughs> so, like, like that's where you start to see that, like, some of that, like, I don't know how to quite deal with this um, aspect, but I, I don't like portrayals in popular culture as much now when I see them like saying, well, they're, they're masking their affection through hostility. It's like, no, they're both hostile and affectionate in this, in this particular relationship. And that early hostility is
0: just yeah. who they were.
1: That that was just their personalities.
0: Yeah. And that apparently carries through after their marriage. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, where it's it's not hostility as enmity or opposition it's hostility as this is how we communicate effectively how we get to our our ultimate conclusions we have to argue it out in this way
1: um any, any uh anything else that you want to make sure we touch on on this uh before we wrap up
0: i just i can't convey enough like how enjoyable it was to listen to this book and the character. I mean, Amelia's character was invigorating just to spend time with, um, in, in the book. Like I felt my energy rise just because it's like, Oh, this person's So it's, she's just got such a potent attitude. I felt like there was energy coming into, uh, my life from it.
1: Yeah. Um, And I mean, on this podcast, we cover all kinds of texts and some of them are more serious and some of them are more comedic and some of them are just for fun. I think this one rides a good balance of being a lot of fun, but it is still managing to address some of those serious topics without like beating you over the head with, um, you know, feminism or uh, classism or racism and xenophobia or any of those. Even though you see those undercurrents just based on the world being 1880s and uh, still this kind of imperialistic. Uh, you know like shaking off the shackles of imperialism in Egypt um but still a very kind of paternalistically imperialistic view from the the British and the French um who are there um like those issues aren't ignored uh, they they're present as, as themes that get played with some uh but it's mostly just a really great adventure story with some really great characters um that that it was a a pleasure to to discover thanks to the suggestion of of listener Kaylee. Well, I think that's going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to The Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episode number 142, when we talked about Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, or episode number 147, when we talked about Murder on the Orient Express. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonist com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonist pod and at J Dorowski and our producer, Andrew, our guest today. Well, I guess I don't, it's weird to call you a guest. I don't know what to call you when you come on <laughs> for these. <laughs> cause, cause you're always there. <laughs> and sometimes you're, you, you participate more
0: than others. And then sometimes now you're kind of like the co-host. Yeah. It's so, so, something between a guest and a host, yeah. but I don't want to call me a ghost. <laughs> Well, I,
1: I, well, sometimes when you just pop in for like the one or two sentences in an episode, that's when you're the ghost. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can follow our producer, Andrew, at Diz minute on Twitter. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast. We have really good conversations there with our listeners and would love for you to say hello anytime. If you would like to support the show financially, you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with the monetary donation by going to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thank you again for listening. And we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. Uh,
0: Um, Hang on, my Um, my computer's being funny. Okay, no problem. Sort that out real quick.